So this morning we are finishing up our text, uh, our, our series, excuse me, uh, over Christ and culture that we've been doing the last several weeks, the last five weeks. This will be number six, sixth and final. Uh, and we are uh, uh, bringing it all together, hopefully, uh, on this last Sunday. Uh, so just to give you a quick recap of where we've been so far, uh, we've been asking the question during this series of how do we as Christians engage culture uh, in a healthy way uh, that would, we, we can get in culture and, and be a part and engage, but represent Christ in everything that we do. How do we live in that space as believers and followers of Jesus? Uh, and we've been looking at that through the lens of Scripture, but also with a book uh, by the name of Christ in Culture uh, by a guy named Richard Niebuhr. It was written in the 50s, 1950s, uh, about this, this very thing and the way that the church or the ways that the church historically has answered that question, the way that the church has chosen to engage the world around it. Uh, and so we started with two extremes. The first extreme, the first time we talked about it from the book, uh, was Christ against culture. Uh, which was a complete removal of uh, Christians from society, uh, pulling aside and living a completely separate life, uh, letting the world do what the world wants to and kind of existing over here. And while we wouldn't go as far as to say that that's the way that we should live because we believe we should also be in the world uh, as a part of the world, we can see the, the good w hidden within that idea of thought, uh, which is that we live by a separate reality. We live according to a distinct calling. And then the next week we looked at the Christ of culture, which is the opposite side of that, the left side of that, if you will, uh, which is basically that culture, if we just leave it alone, will produce the same results that uh, the church will, produce the same results that Christianity will. And so culture and, 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 and the church are one of the same, can work together for the same ends, have the same goal, that kind of mindset. Now, we don't think that anymore. There are very few people that would actually fall in this category anymore. There might have been 100 years ago or so. Uh, but while we don't think that way anymore, we can also see that Christ speaks through cultural things, uh, that Christ's fingerprints are all over the world, uh, that he can speak to us through other people, that he speaks to us through art, that he speaks to us through different media, uh, that Christ is alive and well, and everything that exists, he is still in control over, and so he can speak through those fallen systems. And then the last three in this book, and the last three that we've been dealing with, are kind of middle-of-the-road ideas. Uh, the first one was a synthesis of the two ideas, that Christ and culture, we, uh, we, can, we can work within culture uh, in order to bring uh, the message of the good news to people. Uh, culture will ultimately fall short, uh, but it'll help us at least push people in that direction. We can use culture in that way. And then last week, we looked at the idea of paradox and how each of us are living, breathing paradoxes. Uh, and much about our world is the same. Uh, we looked at Paul's words in Romans 7 about how the, the things that he wants to do are the very things that he doesn't do. The things that he doesn't want to do are the things that he ends up doing. Uh, and he bemoans that fact for several lines in Romans 7. Uh, and, and we kind of looked at how we deal with that reality ourselves, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner, uh, that we are washed in the blood of Jesus, but we're still struggling with the sinfulness of our flesh. And if that is true about us individually, it's also true about us corporately and culturally, um, that there is a lot of good in the world, but there's also a lot of evil in the world. And our job is to point out the light in the world and point to someone who is only light, someone in whom there is no paradox, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ himself. 
Now, in his book, Niebuhr would say that you can borrow from all of these different ways of looking, and you should. He never makes the argument that one is good and one is, is, is bad, or this one is better than the other. Uh, and he would even say he doesn't really have any favorites. It's just kind of a, a, a survey, if you will, is what his book is, as to different ways that the church has interacted in the world. But if I have a favorite, it's the one we're looking at this morning. And I think if Niebuhr had a favorite, it's probably the one we're looking at this morning. Um, I don't know for sure. He's no longer with us, so he can't answer that question. Uh, but I would think that maybe it was the one that, that, he talk, that I'm going to talk about this morning because he saved it for the very end of his book. And I don't know about you, but if you're ever making an argument, you usually wait till the very end to make your final big point, right? The one you really agree with. Uh, and this uh, time, this, this way of looking at this question that we're going to look at today is called Christ Transforming Culture. If you have ever built a home or bought a new home and decided that it was time to uh, make yourself at home, to decorate it, or to design it if you're building from the ground up, you probably took great care in the details. Uh, if this was some sort of home that you were going to have for a long time, like if you have in mind that you're going to live here for, uh, maybe it's just a season, but maybe it's a long season. Uh, as long as your kids are in the home and you have kids that are very young. Or maybe you're retiring and you're picking that final spot. You know, we're, we're going to buy this place. We're going to fix it up. We're never going to move again. You know, this is we're gonna be where we can live for the rest of our lives. If you've been in that situation, you take care to make the details well known to everybody who is designing and or decorating it. You make sure that it's designed perfectly for you and what you feel comfortable with. If you want extra space for grandkids, you make extra space for grandkids. If you want there to be uh, a man cave or a uh, she shed, you make sure that that exists on the property somewhere. You, you go to great lengths to make it comfortable for you, comfortable for the people who will be around you, ease of access to everything that you think you need, all of those things that you think if you're designing. And if you're decorating, you put things on the walls and you decorate the cabinets and the, uh, the living room and the bedrooms and ways that exemplify your personality that say something about you uh, you want it to look in such a way when somebody walks in they say ah, that's that's the cornuts home it looks like them their their sports teams their pictures whatever it might be are obvious and, and visible and you can tell that this space has been transformed by the people who live within it because that's reality about us is we transform the spaces around us whether we want to or not we just most of the time do transform the spaces around us. If we don't, we can form to fit that space. So maybe instead of long term, maybe you have been in a situation in your life where you were moving into some place and you knew that it was going to be a short period of time. You knew that you were going to live in that apartment for a year or that you were going to live in, in this house while your other house got ready. You knew that it was a short-term kind of thing. Or maybe you're really into uh, real estate and, and that kind of thing, and you bought a house for a while, and you lived in it while you flipped it, knowing that it was going to be for someone else. And when you are in that kind of situation, you decorate. You might put a few things in the house that exemplify you, but a lot of those other details you don't pay that close attention to. Because if you want it to sell again, you're not going to mess up the resale value by making it particular to you in a way that you know, know won't be particular to your average person. Uh, and if you're going to flip it, you sure as heck won't do that because you want it to be a blank slate for the next owners. But also there's just the reality, if you know you're just going to be there for a long time, well, why bother transforming this space? Why put that much effort into it? And I wonder sometimes how we look at our world in relation to our Christian walk. That while we are living here, 
Do we transform this place with great detail? Uh, do we take time about the little things that matter to people around us, the, the people that are around us? Do we take time to invest in transforming our home, transforming our world, our sphere of influence in order to look the way that Christ would call us to have it look? Or do we think to ourselves, we're just here for a minute, I'm ready to get out of here, and we don't spend much time thinking about transforming the space around us? What we're going to see this morning is Jesus in John 17 praying on behalf of his apostles and by extension, all of us. Praying that we would be in the world but not of the world. Praying that we would be sent in the same way that he was sent. Praying in a way then that we would transform the world around us in his name. And so what I want to put before you this morning is how are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you transforming this world to look more like the kingdom of heaven than the way it looks today? Or to put it more personally, a question I want you to put in the back of your head throughout our time together this morning is this, is my world more Christ-like because I live in it? Is my world more Christ-like because I live in it? And I don't mean that my world is in, I'm the king of the universe, this world's all about me. I mean, my world is in your sphere of influence. The place in which you exist, your home, your career, your family, your school. Is my world more Christ-like because I'm in it? In John 17, Jesus had just finished having his final meal with his apostles. The Last Supper had just ended. And he prays this prayer Moments before he goes to the garden to pray, to ask Jesus, or to ask his father to take this cup from him, and he doesn't. Knowing that his time is coming to an end soon, Judas has probably already left at this point to go and get the guards from the Sanhedrin and bring them to arrest Jesus. They could even be brokering the deal as Jesus is praying this prayer. Perhaps they're getting to ready to go make the raid on Jesus and bring him in. But moments after this passage, he goes to the garden, he is arrested, and he is led to his eventual crucifixion. So before his crucifixion, this is one of the last things that Jesus does. One of the last kind of words that his apostles, and John is the one who keeps it for us, records for all of us. And, and, and it's a beautiful passage. The whole thing is beautiful. It's about more than what I'm going to talk about this morning. Uh, and it's a beautiful word about Jesus' heart for his church and the people that he was leaving behind to do the work. I would encourage you to read it. It shows the heart of Jesus for his apostles more clearly than probably anywhere else in the Gospels. But in it, we also see his heart to send us. And so as we jump into this scripture, again, keep that question in your head. Is my world more Christ-like because I am in it? And let's pray together before we jump in. Father, we again thank you for this morning. We thank you for this place. God, we thank you that you are here among us and within us. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, God, you would speak to each heart this morning. God, that you would remove things that would close us off and, and Lord, speak to each open heart exactly what you want to and lead us where you will. God, we seek to be about you and nothing else to have you as the king of our heart and nothing else. And God, we pray that you would transform the world around us. God, that you would do that work through us. 
God, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to read and engage your word. God, may you speak or listening. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. Again, Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of the apostles. So he says these words to God. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. First thing of note in this passage, in this prayer of Jesus, is that we are not of this world. That's what Jesus says of us. Uh, because he is not of this world, neither are we of this world. And by the way, if you're wondering why I'm saying we instead of the apostles, in verse 20, Jesus goes on to say, I'm, I'm not praying this just for these, but also all who will come to believe through their testimony. So that is by you an extension, by, by an extension, you and me. And so Jesus praying this prayer for the church as it was and as it always will be, uh, recognizing that we are not of this world. We do not belong in this place. This is not our ultimate home. It is where we are now, and he didn't want us to leave the world. He makes that very clear, but that we are not of the world. So how can we be in the world, but not of the world? That's, you know, one of those Christian things that Christians say, be in the world, but not of the world. But what does that really mean to be in it, but not of it? Uh, We were born in the world. We've always lived in the world. Most of us work in the world. We have friends and family in the world. Everything that we do is in the world. How are we supposed to say not of the world? is that even when we are in a space that is bent against God and against the kingdom of God in a lot of ways, there is something within us that is different, something that marks us a citizenship that belongs to a different place. It would be like all of you probably know, if you know me, uh, you know that I'm a Texas Longhorn fan. Please forgive me if you are not. Uh, oh, I hear some speck there from the, the Aggies. So imagine that I had a friend invite me to uh, the Aggies playing the Longhorns, which should happen again. Can I get an amen from everyone on that, right? Uh, it should happen again. Uh, if you care about sports, It's a great rivalry that just got thrown away, but that's beside the point. I'm not preaching about that. I'm not preaching to the presidents or whatever from uh, UT and A&M. But imagine that rivalry struck back up and I got invited to go watch a game in College Station uh, with a friend and I was sitting beside them in the Aggie section. Here's what I'm not gonna do. I'm not gonna be that guy, and I know those guys exist. I'm not gonna be that guy who wears orange head to toe, has Bevo horns on my head, uh, you know, is, is saying terrible things about A&M and cheering really loudly every time they fail. I'm not going to be that guy because I respect the friend who would bring me, but because I also don't have a death wish. Can I get an amen on that one, right? I don't want nothing bad to happen to me. So I'm not going to do that, but inwardly, if Texas scores, I'm going to be cheering. Now, hopefully, I have a good poker face. I feel like I have a good poker face, so you won't see it on my face. But 
inwardly, if you could read my mind, you would hear the woohoo, you know, you'd hear the cheering going on. Now, I have had this opportunity. I have sat at a Baylor game, invited by friends when Texas beat them, and had to hold that in, right? Uh, we were around, Cheryl went with me. We didn't wear burnt orange, I don't think. Did we? No, I don't think we, we, we wore neutral colors because we were smart. Um, and, and so we were in that section, but we weren't of that section, right? We were in their fan base, but we're certainly not of their fan base. We have a different allegiance. And that means that the events that we see going on, we look at them through a very different light because we belong to a different allegiance. It's the same way in the world. When we see everything going on in the world, we're in it. We're right alongside everybody else, but we look at the things going on in a very different light. We see things behind the scenes in different ways than other people might see them. We are in the world, but we are not of this world. And Jesus says that's why the world hates them, meaning us. The world will hate them because it hated me first. Jesus tells us that elsewhere. Uh, Hate is a strong word, but it certainly means to be opposed to the ways of God. And here is a reality that I think we need to talk about more in the world today, especially in the church today. Radical obedience to Jesus will always put us at odds with worldly systems. Radical obedience to Jesus will always put us at odds with worldly systems. And when I say worldly systems, I mean all worldly systems of all persuasions. Eventually, if we live out radical faith in Jesus, truly biblical behavior following after Jesus, we will be at odds with all man-made systems. Regardless of what they look like, or who is running them. So in light of everything that's going on this week, regardless of how you vote, and I know many of you have probably already voted. Uh, I saw a statistic, I think I read it this morning, if not, it was yesterday, uh, that more people have already voted early in Texas in 2020 than voted altogether in 2016, which is pretty cool. Uh, We see democracy at work, despite all of the negativity out there. It is amazing to see that many Americans out there exercising the free right that we have to choose our governance. But regardless of how you vote or regardless of how you did, remember that truly radical and biblical Christianity will at times, no matter which way you vote, will at times call you out of and away from your party's platform. That there is no party platform perfectly in alignment with the gospel of Jesus. And that if we ever elevate any man-made system of belief and say that this is the only way that a Christian can properly believe. And I don't mean on a particular issue. On a particular issue, we can say that. But down the board, we have to agree on all this party's opinions, then we are wholesaling the gospel off to the world and not being that unique salt and light that we are called to be. We are being in the world and of the world. If we sell ourselves for political power, political gain, and say, just this way of thinking is the only way of thinking. And so what I would encourage you to do is however you vote, realize that there will come a time as the church of Jesus Christ where we are called to speak truth to power, where we are called to be the witness of the gospel of Jesus to say this is right and applaud when good decisions are made, but when evil decisions are made by man or by systems that we say this is not right, this is not the way that things should go. And we as followers of Jesus ought to be ready and able and willing to call out any, 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 any ungodly decision on either side. 
Now, I know that might not necessarily be popular because the popular thing is to say, well, I'm going to hitch my wagon to this one guy or this one party, and we're going to go all in that way. And look, I believe you should pray about your vote. I believe you should go vote. I believe if you search scripture that God will lead you to vote for who he's going to lead you to vote for and that you should do that. But in the end, our allegiance belongs to God and not to party or man. Can I get an amen on that idea in itself? Our allegiance belongs solely to Christ. And we as the church, that has been one beautiful thing about the church throughout its existence is that the church, when it is separated from man-made power, we see it when it gets corrupt, like in Catholicism in, 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 in before the Reformation, how corrupt it got because it got in bed with power. But when the church has separated itself from power and not allowed itself to be enticed by worldly power around it, it has been able to speak truth back to power. And it's going to look different depending upon who gets elected. Uh, if one side gets elected, you're gonna need to speak about this truth. If the other side, you're gonna need to remember this truth, right? And we make sure that we always represent Christ first in everything that we do. And we see an example in Jesus in the gospels. Jesus existed in a sectarian era, much like we do. People were very divided. Even the Jews themselves were divided. How many times do you see Jesus have conversations with the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Those were two sects of Judaism that had very different ideas about the way things should go and laws that should be made. And when they would come to Jesus, many times with arguments, he would answer their question, usually with another question, but he would always do so in such a way that blew both of their minds. It was not the, question, the answer that either one of them were looking for because he didn't belong to Pharisaism. He didn't belong to Sadduceeism. Jesus came to bring in a new kingdom and a new commandment that we love one another. That's what he came to do, to build something new, not this old, he said, she said, back and forth. Jesus came to build something new, bigger, and higher that is above all of that divisiveness. That's how Jesus worked within his era and we can work the same way. Now that means we will support one party's decision in a particular era, or we might support another party's decision in a particular decision, but it always means that our allegiance is solely placed on Jesus, and our behavior and moral decisions are always based upon his word and nothing else. And I think even though we say that in a, you know, in a divided world, everybody, oh, is that too much? I think we can all agree on that, can't we? That our ultimate allegiance should be to Jesus and our sole God for behavior is his word. And we ought to hold any politician and any party accountable to that reality. We are not of this world. But Jesus tells us that while we are in this world that we're not of, which basically means that we're on foreign soil, he asks for protection. We have, a, we have protection while on this foreign soil. Now, it's not a physical protection. Uh, we're not gonna run into a burning house and come out unscathed or bullets aren't going to bounce off of us. No, it's a spiritual kind of protection. Jesus asked for protection against the evil one, against the devil. Uh, it is a protection that means that our souls can never be taken from us. Uh, the, 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 the thing that we give to Jesus when we are justified by his grace, when we are saved by Jesus, the thing that we give to him can never be taken away by anything else. We have a protection against evil and against the evil one in Jesus that no one else offers. 
You know, when you go to a foreign country, any of you have been on mission trips, especially into like uh, third world countries, uh, you know, where diseases exist there that don't exist here. Uh, if you've ever made a visit to one of those, you likely had to go to a doctor and get at least one inoculation, if not several, uh, to, you know, typhoid or whatever to keep you from getting that illness that is still running rampant there that's been pretty much eradicated in the West. Uh, and, and when you do that, you, you do that you, so that you won't catch that disease while you're there. Uh, so that you can go in and move around freely without worrying about that particular thing. In in a way, it's like what God has done to us through Jesus Christ is that he is sending us out of the world into his mission field, but through his salvation and through his grace, he has given us a power against sin and death. Now, again, paradox, last week, we still falter to sin, our flesh is still at work, but sin no longer, because we have grace within us, because we have the saving faith of Jesus within us, sin no longer has the power to destroy our souls. Sin no longer has the power to to make us its master. While we might falter in the flesh, our only master is Jesus from this point forward. And so we can go into the world knowing that our soul, no matter what happens to us today or tomorrow or any day in the future, our soul is firmly founded in Jesus and nothing, 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 nothing is going to change that. In other words, fight like you're spiritually invincible because you are spiritually invincible. Now, does that mean that we should take spiritual things for granted or that we should be arrogant in our own strength? No. But if you are founded and planted in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that can steal your soul or your spirit away from you. That means that today, I was saved at the age of 15. It's when I asked Jesus to save me, to come into my heart and to change me. I'm I'm continuing to work out my salvation, continuing to allow God to work on me. He's got a lot of work still to do. But that day when I was 15, 22 years ago, goodness, it's getting to that point where I have to do the math in my head for a second. It doesn't just happen readily. Uh, But 22 years ago, uh, when I gave my life to Jesus, from that point forward and still today, I can stand before you knowing that No matter what happens to me in the next moment, no matter what happens to our country in the next year, no matter what happens to our world in the next decade, that I am founded firmly in Jesus and I will live with him for eternity. Nothing can change that reality about me right now. It's true about me now and it'll be true about me forever. Nothing can change that. And so if that's the truth, that ought to, and it doesn't enough, but it ought to give me a sense of boldness, right? That I can give myself to any calling to which Jesus is laying before me. And that any danger out there, danger to myself, danger to others, perceived danger around me, any danger that is out there, if he's really calling me to it, he's going to protect me through it. Does that mean that physically I'm always gonna be okay? Does that mean that anyone who dies, it wasn't part of God's plan? No, it means that God is bigger than even death and even physical ill, uh, that God will ultimately save us completely and eternally in heaven. And we can take that to the bank and it ought to give us a sense of boldness in the way that we seek to transform the world around us. And we can rest in this protection because we, as Jesus has asked his father, are sanctified, set apart, what that word basically means 
real quickly. That word appears a few times, sanctified, uh, consecrated also appears in my English standard version. I don't know what version you're reading. It might be different words, but anytime you read sanctified or consecrated, that's the same Greek word. Uh, And it's basically the Greek word for holy turned into a verb. Okay, so if you read those, read them basically as one and the same. For whatever reason, the translation committee has just decided to use different words. But sanctified and and, and, uh, 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 consecrated basically mean the same thing. Anyway, so we are sanctified in the truth. We are separated in the truth. And Jesus says in the truth, speaking to God, is your word. And so we find protection, spiritual protection from the world around us in God's word by hiding his word in our heart, by recognizing the things that it says about us, the things that it says about the world, knowing that there is no, no, no weapon prepared that can come against us and be victorious, knowing that everything, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing, not death, not life, not powers, not principalities, not past, not future, not angels, not demons, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And because we can hide this word in our heart, we can have peace and protection when we move into a world that we are not of but that we are in we have protection on this foreign soil and so protected being protected in a world that we are in but not of we have this final closing uh, part of the scripture that I read verses 18 and 19 as you Jesus talking to the father as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. A couple of things about that. First, Jesus has sent us into the world just as the Father sent him. There ought to be a bell that goes off when you read that. Because the question that begs, that's not asked, but it rather is in between the lines, is how did God send Jesus into the world? Jesus says he's sending us into the world just as his father sent him. So how did his father send him? You all know the story. You know that God sent Jesus as a sacrifice for the sin of humanity so that we might be reconciled to God be free from sin and death and rescued to live with him for eternity. God sent Jesus to die so that we don't have to. The ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in his epistles, to reconcile the world back to himself, the father sent the son as a living sacrifice. And so if Jesus is sending us into the world in the same way, all of a sudden there's a little bit of weight to what he is saying. And even though he's talking about protection, well, now you know why we're going to need the protection, right? Now you know why we're going to need to stay firmly in Christ and not wander away from him where the protection doesn't exist because there are forces at work, because there are things going on that are bigger than we could ever imagine. But more than our physical lives, I don't think, I never think that he's saying that everyone is called to live a martyr's death. That would be ridiculous. There would be no living testimony if everyone was a martyr. But instead, what Christ calls us to do is to die to ourselves. That no one truly lives until they die to themselves. That we, as Jesus says in the Gospels, take up our cross 
daily and follow after him. As Paul says in Romans 12, kind of a companion to this idea about transformation, that we are living sacrifices, not being conformed to the world around us, but being transformed by God within us. We are called to die to ourselves and to give ourselves to the world for that same mission for which Jesus came. Being sent as Jesus was sent means leveraging your entire life to seek and save that which is lost. If we are truly sent the way Jesus was sent, we're sent so that we can leverage everything about us to seek and save that which is lost. Our careers, our families, our talents, and abilities, the days on this planet, that we can leverage them to seek and save that which is lost. In verse 19, Jesus consecrates himself. And he's basically using language here of someone preparing a sacrifice. The way that a priest would before Jesus, the way a priest would, according to the law of the Old Testament, would prepare a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of the people. Jesus is talking about consecrating himself preparing himself for a sacrifice. Again, contextually, think about where we are. Like I said, Judas could be brokering the deal that would result in Jesus' arrest and crucifixion while this prayer is being uttered. We're literally hours away from the crucifixion starting. And Jesus is consecrating himself so that we too may be sanctified. Again, it's the same word as consecrated so that we may too be made ready for the truth. Jesus, for the first time in history, is both priest and sacrifice. He is the priest king who's come, right? Jesus is the high priest, as the author of Hebrews says. And he has come to prepare the sacrifice that will end all sacrifices, which happens to be himself. And so he consecrates himself. And I hope that you see the beauty of the cross present within this passage moments before the cross. That Jesus consecrates himself towards that sacrifice for the people that he loves. For his ultimate bride, which is the church of Jesus Christ. For the apostles that he knew by name that he lived with, but also all of those who would come to believe through their testimony, that is you and I. When Jesus was getting ready for that moment, he looks at himself like a sacrifice and he does He makes himself ready. He consecrates himself for that moment so that he can give his life to save ours. And we are sent in the same way that Jesus is sent, meaning that you and I are called to put down our own selfish desires, to put down what we think the world is telling us we should be and instead live according to a godly calling, live with godly allegiance and that alone so that we might give ourselves for those around us. The world is not your home. If your primary allegiance relies on any worldly system, it's time to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand in the midst of the visitiveness of our day, calling all people all around the world on both sides of every aisle to obedience and salvation in Jesus Christ. 
We will pray today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, if we figure out the results, results then, or however long it's gonna be, hopefully by Christmas, right? We'll know who's the president, but we're gonna pray during that entire time that God would do what God would do. But here's the thing, I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna get on my knees, I'm gonna pray a lot for this election, but I already know that God's gonna do whatever God wants to do. And whatever happens is what God has already willed. Romans 13 tells us that no one steps into a position of power unless that God is willed by God. Sometimes we don't understand why when our person doesn't get elected. Sometimes we think it's, oh yes, this must be God's decision. But either way, God is at work and God is sovereign. Pray and vote what you believe. Take it seriously. I would never say, don't take it seriously. I'll just vote. It's another thing. No, this is a serious election on which you need to hit your knees if you have not already, on which you need to study scripture, which you need to seek your brothers and sisters in Christ in order to figure out how you need to cast that ballot. And I would encourage everyone to do just that. But at the end of the day, when Wednesday comes, when this season is over, may we take a moment to celebrate or to mourn. And then get ourselves together and get back to the word of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed. May we get back to picking up the pieces of what's been a difficult, divisive year and political season for a decade probably, if not longer. And recognize that there are people out there, people who you vehemently disagree with, people who you think are leading the world and the country in the absolute wrong direction, and and that, that maybe you're tempted to actually have hateful feelings toward, that those people are out there and that they, just as much as everyone else, are in need of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And the only thing that's going to save them is not you condemning them for the way that they voted, but instead you preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed and loving them the way that you love yourself. The world needs transformational living from Christians more than it needs our vote. I think the world needs our vote too. But the world needs transformational living from Christians more than it needs anything else from us. And so may we live in that way. May we love our neighbor well, even if we think they're totally wrong about everything. May we love them well anyway. Because our primary citizenship is in heaven. And we have been sent to this foreign kingdom to transform this world. To look more like the kingdom of heaven tomorrow than it does today. To transform this place, our lives, according to worldly standards. One commentator I read this week put it this way. His name is Kent Hughes about this passage, I thought he put it well, so I thought I'd quote him. He says, the scriptures guard us from isolation or assimilation and gear us for mission. That we are not called to pull away from the world and run, nor are we called just to blend in, but instead we are called to be, Jesus would say, in the world, but not of the world. Neither isolated nor assimilated, but on mission for Jesus Christ. And that brings us full circle back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Is my world more Christ-like because I'm in it? 
I just talked about some big national things, right? The election. How much bigger can you get than that? But my, one of my core beliefs about the church and about the world is that while those big things make a big difference, the change really starts with small groups of people. That's how change has always worked. That's how the gospel started. It was with a group of 12 men and Jesus leading them. And then the hundred or so disciples that they had following them at the time of Jesus' death. And it took over the world. And so, Jesus right now, for you, he's concerned about the way you're going to vote. But he's also concerned, more so, about the way you live in your world right now. And if the church across the globe, the body of Christ on every continent, could live individually transformational lives, the world would be changed. Our country would be changed for the good, regardless of who's president. Because here's the truth, all right? I, have to, I say this every election, every time we have an election, just because I think it needs to be said. No matter who is getting inaugurated on January 20th or 21st, 2021, whoever the president is, Jesus is still king. Jesus is still Lord. He's not going to fall off his throne if your guy loses. Right? There's not going to be an extra big party in heaven if your guy wins. He's already got this planned. And all the angst, all the people worrying about what's going to happen, he's already got it planned. And there's no situation in which he loses. And so the same is true for you and I. If we are solely founded in him, may we have that peace. May we have that faith. And may we realize that because Jesus is taking care of all that stuff, what I'm called to transform is my world. Things that happen in my sphere of influence. And to bring it again to that question that I want you to think about as we worship here one last time as the band is coming up. Is, is my world more Christ-like? Because I'm in it. As you're thinking about that, praying about that, if there's anyone here who does not have a saving relationship with Jesus, I would love to tell you what that looks like. I'll be down here while we're singing. I'll hang around after the service for a few minutes as well, if you would like to talk then. But I want you to know if you don't have that relationship, that there is no thing that can change and transform your life as much as a relationship with Jesus and once you are saved in him, you are secure for eternity. I would love to tell you about him if you don't know him. And for those of you who do have a saving relationship with Jesus, I really just want you to concentrate on this question, to pray about this question, to think about it in your own life, to have a conversation with God right where you are. You can come and kneel at the altar. You can come and pray with me, whatever God is leading you to do. Well, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Again, our band is going to lead us in worship one more time. And as they do, may you ponder and pray over that question. Father, we thank you for who you are. And God, we thank you that you are sovereign. That you already know what Wednesday is going to look like. That you're not worried. You're not anxious. You're not angry. You're not sad. God, may we have that peace in the days to come. And God, as we rest in the peace of your truth that is your word,
the protection that we have in you. God, may you show us ways that you can transform the world around us through us. God, may you show us people to love well. May you show us decisions that we need to make. May you show us behaviors that we need to change. God, show us how to live Christ-like so that you can transform this world through your church. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.